agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government has the government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, we get to say goodbye to 2021 together in this special episode. Woohoo! Yeah, that that's, sounds good to me. <laughs> you don't seem so enthused about that, though. But yeah, 2021 was not a great year, but I guess I was glad to have Biden in instead of uh, Trump. But um, in other respects, I don't think this was anyone's idea of a great year. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I would, you know, I'm, I'm going to look forward to saying goodbye to both personally and, uh, and, and but yeah, I mean, we do, you do, we, well, I mean, that's one of the things that I think we want to talk about is, right? So what we're going to do uh, uh, this week is, is that we're going to do a little bit of a special show, Ken, right? I mean, we are probably some of the best, I mean, as any politics guys, fans going to know, we're probably the best predictors out of all the politics guys. I mean, I think you can agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll agree with that, having not having not actually studied it scientifically, but I'll, I'll be happy to agree to that. Intuitively, it has to be true, though. I mean... Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, and so because of that, uh, you know, what we kind of thought we would do is we take a look at some of the bigger trends of 2021. Uh, and then in all seriousness, try to think about what might 2022 uh, uh, look like as we're moving forward across a variety of landscapes. And so what Ken and I are going to do is uh, we're going to talk and take a look at the durability of American democracy in 2022. We're going to talk about inflation, the economy and the Fed in 2022. We're going to talk about what the pandemic is going to be looking like in 2022. And then maybe have some particularly uh, early, but nevertheless interesting uh, uh, looks at midterm predictions and then presidential predictions. So even a little bit beyond there uh, into 2022 to the extent that we want to. We'll also take a look at just a few stories. We're going to take a look at some cases dealing with the Proud Boys, Michael Flynn, uh, and maybe if there's time even uh, talk a little bit about the, the continuing crisis with Ukraine and Russia. And so that's where we're going to be headed. So we're going to take a brief pause and then we'll be back and get started with our predictions. Okay, so Ken, let's start by talking about some of the things, some of the trends that we saw in 2021 that might help us more realistically make uh, some predictions as we move forward and try to look into the future for 2022. I think for me, I don't think you're going to probably disagree, but I thought one of the biggest political landscape changes we saw was January 6th, and not just because of January 6th itself. But because of the whole steel movement that has really come to solidify and define uh, the Republican Party. One of the things I noticed this week, I don't know if you've been paying attention. I'm, I'm always curious about poll numbers. Uh, Mitch McConnell this week is polling historically historically low uh, among Republicans. And I think it's emblematic that even his soft version of there was no steel and now in, uh, increasingly kind of January 6th committee curious, <laughs> we'll put it that way, uh, simply isn't the mainstream yeah. position. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, you know, he, he votes right. against it. And then now he wants to kind of see what, he, you know, at least publicly is saying he wants to see what what's uh, come out. Republicans don't take that same kind of view. 
And though, although this realization, I think, came earlier for me than for him, I think what we're seeing, what we kind of see in 2021 is a shift in, 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 in the, in the Republican party. Uh, and, and, and for listeners who are interested in a little deeper, there's actually uh, a political scientist, Aldridge, and he writes this really important book about thinking about party systems in the United States. And what he tries to do is he goes through and he looks and understands, right? In the United States, Ken and I, we've talked a bunch about how we have a two party system because of the electoral system that we have, but that doesn't mean you always have the same exact two parties. Two parties can, can come and go inside of a two-party system. And even when, a, when an institutional party itself doesn't leave, the party itself can be transformed. And so party systems are the stable parties that exist in any, in any particular time. I'm going to kind of say, and this is kind of both a backwards-looking and a forwards-facing uh, prediction, is, is that I think as, you know, when Aldridge updates his book, or maybe I'll write it next time, um, you know, somewhere here, I'm 2021 is as good as any to say that we see and the Republican Party is fundamentally different. I don't think they're going to I don't think they're conservatives anymore. And I don't think and I think if we're trying to make predictions about the future, that anyone's going to have to be kind of aware of that change moving forward. So Jan 6, Republican shift. Those are my big 2021 takeaways. What about for you, Ken? What do you have there, do you think? Uh, yeah, Trey, I agree quite a bit with your prediction. And I was thinking about this even in a global context. Um, there's a, a recent um, a bunch of op-eds by Richard Pildes, who's a law professor who studies the law of democracy. And he was noting that um, he was putting this in a global context. And he was noting that in the European parliamentary systems where you have multiple parties, um, it, it was until fairly recently the case that the two major parties between them would get a very large majority of the vote. So in Germany, for instance, um, the two largest parties collectively 10 years ago were getting 90% of the vote, and the many third parties were, were splitting the other 10%. Um, and that's really unraveled now to the point where the, the two major parties between them are just barely eking 60% of the vote, and the third parties are splitting um, uh, 40%. And here in America, I think we're just seeing that manifest itself in a different way, that same impulse. But instead of seeing the um, actual um, emergence of, of third parties as electoral forces, um, we're seeing a lot of factionalism within the parties, uh, really within both the Democrats and the Republicans. But I think right now, probably a bit more within the Republicans for the um, uh, some of the reasons you talked about, that the, the, the faction that has sort of... Um, Centered, centered itself um, not so much on any particular substantive issue, but on a direct assault on democratic institutions, as exemplified on January sixth and through uh, sort of late late period Trumpism. Um, that seems to be the the faction um, with the most energy. Um, in the Republicans right now, and it seems pretty intent on on squeezing out um, the older factions who had organized themselves around uh, different kinds of, of issues and concerns. And so, I, yeah, I, I do agree we'll continue to see that. And I think, sadly, the Trump wing of the party is going to be dominant for some time, um, and maybe that's going to cause a little bit more unraveling of, of the rest of that party. Um, my other prediction that I'll make, it, it, which maybe is related, is um, I'm going to predict that in the midterm elections coming up in 22, that although I'll agree with most pundits who are saying the Republicans are going to retake the House in November, um, I think that's going to happen 
without any increase in the number of Americans who cast votes for Republicans. So I think that's going to be done entirely through gerrymandering and that the actual um, the, the votes cast will be not only majority Democrat, but significant majority Democrat. Like I think Democrats will get probably 53 percent or 54 percent of the of the popular vote for congressional seats, uh, but 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 still find themselves in the minority um, uh, after the election um, entirely because of gerrymandering. So I'll agree in part and disagree in part. So let's talk a little bit about the midterm since you did that there. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, Republicans definitely win. And, and one of the things I think, and this is something that I'm always trying to hammer home to my intro students, is the importance of state elections on national outcomes, right? Because state elections determine those boundaries that you're talking about, right? They, they, they determine uh, what those, what that balance between parties, the likelihood of winning or losing can be. Um, so I agree with you. And I, one of the things that I think that historically Democrats have more in more modern times not been as effective at has been at the more local level. Uh, I, I don't think they've been particularly effective at the local level. They haven't as won as many of those elections. And as a result, you're right, they're handicapped. Um, because they're not the ones drawing the boundaries, which which traditionally is they did uh, uh, not historically speaking, not too long ago. I would go for I would go further and say I don't think it's just going to be on the basis of gerrymandering, though. I mean, historically speaking, you do see that vote shift when you have a president in power, and based on what we think is going to happen economically, which is something else I think we'd like to talk about. Uh, I think you, that might even get a, a bigger uptick. In other words. You know, when you're thinking about and trying to make predictions, you always ask, well, what's the base rate, right? You know, most things are not a, a coin flip. And so I would argue that the election isn't a coin flip. You're going to see as a base rate more Republicans come out to vote, but they certainly aren't going to be hurt. And on that front, I agree with you uh, by having a, a, a control of a lot of state legislatures and therefore having the ability to make boundaries that better uh, suit their national victories. Yeah, although the, um, the, 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 there's not a symmetry between what the Democrats do and what the Republicans do when they're in control of a state. And uh, um, uh, there are a small handful of states where Democrats have gerrymandered for the benefit of Democrats, but the large majority of Democratic states um, have, have not gerrymandered. And uh, I think today, this week we saw new maps come out in Michigan and in Virginia, um, uh, and they're not gerrymandered. Um, in Colorado, they're so not gerrymandered that it's actually possible Republicans might get a majority of the congressional seats there, despite being a, a minority, um, uh, you know, among the electorate. Um, and and so, um, you know, if you compare that um, to, to to states like 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 Texas or Ohio or North Carolina or Pennsylvania, um, where the the Republicans have been able to leverage um, uh, small majorities in, among the electorate into large majorities, uh, both in the state legislature and the 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 Congress, um, I don't think you see Democrats making um, do, doing that in, in in a similar way, and so um, I think the 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 anti the anti democracy um, uh, ideology of the contemporary Republican Party um, is is part of the story of gerrymandering. It's not just that the, that they're doing um, uh, better in 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 state and local elections. 
I agree. And you, I think that kind of sets us up maybe for talking about one of our big move forward predictions. Uh, but before we hit that, why don't we take a brief break? Okay, so Ken, what you were arguing before we went into the break effectively was is that we have to think about the different ways that Democrats and Republicans, at least contemporaneously, have handled uh, map drawing uh, in, in, in when it comes to national congressional uh, elections. And I think that's a and that, I think that's a fair point that we need to that we need to talk about. But I think it kind of fits in larger there because you had tied this uh, to something that I had said at the beginning, thinking about Republicans and what they mean co- contemporaneously about uh, the steel. Um, now, historically speaking, and that's what I was thinking of about this. Right, once upon a time, both parties, when they controlled state uh, uh, states, uh, created maps that were beneficial for them. As a matter of fact, one of the big reasons for a lot of the voting organizations that exist today was effectively the truth that the map maker is the one who primarily determines uh, elections. Now, on for the Democratic Party. Uh, they they kind of have a transformation in the contemporary period and suggest that, look, we need to have more democracy. Now, part of that, of course, could be tied into the fact that they saw that as being a winning path forward, right? This idea that they would, over the long term, uh, win out in more uh, um, mathematically fair uh, uh, electoral uh, arrangements. And so they've made that push. Now, one possibility, and that's what you're suggesting, is is that those pushes for fair don't result in fair. Colorado is actually, I think, a really great exa- potential example of that. But you know, that, that leads us into this question then of, you know, in terms of the system that we have, how do we have the fairest one that we have? Or do Democrats need to go back to trying to, to, to gerrymander as they had, say, during the 1920s? Um, so I'm curious. So what do you think about that? And then I got a, a broader question. Yeah, I mean, I'm in favor of Democratic gerrymandering under current uh, conditions, although I'm opposed to gerrymandering generally. But if I was um, if I could write the laws, um, uh, I would say that uh, states like New York and California should amend their constitutions to um, link their map making process um, to that of other states. And they should they should say, well, if Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania um, are not having fair elections, then we're not going to have fair elections either. And uh, if if those states will go to fair elections, then we will go to fair elections. And, uh, that's, that's how I would do it. That's kind of a I, mean, I like that you get there. But I think that's one of the things that's always kind of problematic. And what that is to determine what makes an election fair. Right. So. One possibility, and we've talked about this, is in a different kind of system. You're not voting in terms of particular districts. What makes our system particularly unique, because we have single-member district parties, is is a district fair because it has relatively equal numbers of Democrats and Republicans in it? In other words, what is the underlying thing that makes it fair? I think for many contemporary Democratic theorists, and I mean by that not the Democratic Party, but Democratic theorists, that the, uh, that the, the goal has been to have districts in which you have relatively equal numbers of both Republicans and Democrats. However, though, 
that leads precisely to what you're talking about in Colorado, because if you have a minority of one particular party and you create theoretically fair districts, you can give that party uh, an outsized benefit by having internally fair, quote unquote, districts. What do you think about that? I've, I've often thought about that. I don't have an answer to that question, but I've often thought about, you know, this, dis, this disconnect between the idea, what is in fact a fair district? And if a fair district is one in which you have equal numbers of both parties, i.e. it's competitive, uh, what do you do in situations where you, you really don't have enough people to always make that happen? Well, you create, I think, a Colorado situation, but I don't know. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, yeah, I don't think it, it necessarily, my concept of fair doesn't necessarily mean that you're trying to um, maximize the competitiveness in every district. But I, I think what it, to me, what it would mean is you're, you're not doing artificial things like dividing political subdivisions. So say there's a county and that county has in it um, about the number of people that would belong in a congressional district. Um, that's about actually 750, in Hamilton today. County, Ohio. Yeah. 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 So Hamilton County, Ohio, where I live is like that. Um, it's about the number of um, the number of people in Hamilton County is about the same as the number of people in a congressional district. So to me, fair just means letting that county be a congressional district and not um, not trying to um, cut it up in ways that dilute its um, impact. And um, now, if, if Hamilton County was a, a congressional district today, um, it wouldn't be that close. It would be a Democratic district. But to me, that's okay. I don't I don't think it it has to be um, cut up in ways to try to make every single district a battlefield district. But I think leaving um, existing political subdivisions intact and um, trying to make the shape of districts be um, 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 compact and, uh, um, uh, um, uh, and and that kind of thing is is good. There's some more sophisticated formulas that, that the, the fair elections people use where they try to um, count what they sometimes call the, the wasted votes and, and, and say, like, um, how many votes have been put into a district that that um, will essentially have no impact because of um, the the district already being you know overwhelmingly one way or the other, and I guess maybe that matches around to to what you were talking about you know making making more battlefield districts. In 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 any case, what I think is the key here more than anything else is that there needs to be a more uniform national system because you you without me, me having all the answers to what system there is, it just simply doesn't work for Republican states to say, well, our system is we're trying to maximize. The, the permanent number of Republican seats. And, and for, for Democratic states to say, well, our system is we're trying to make every district into a, a battlefield district. Um, that leads to situations like we did have until the um, 2020 election where, you know, when you have... Um, uh, majorities voting for Democrats, um, and 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 yet the 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 majorities being um, awarded to the Republicans, and and it, I think in Wisconsin actually I, I forgot to mention Wisconsin, but it's so the gerrymandering is so extreme there in the state legislature that um, the majority of voters in Wisconsin did vote for Democrats in the state legislature, but not only do the Republicans control both houses of the state legislature, they control it by supermajorities. They they have supermajorities that can over rule can override the governor's veto, even though they're the minority party. Um, and the majority party can't even defend a governor's veto. I mean, that, that's absurdly anti-democratic. And if that's going to be allowed in Wisconsin, then that's what should be happening also in democratic states. And it, you could set up a state like Colorado so that there wouldn't be any Republican seats. Um, Colorado hasn't chosen to do that. New York and California don't have a lot of Republican seats, but they actually could eliminate all their Republican seats, but they, but they haven't chosen to do it. 
See, I, I think what, one of the things that comes back to this, and this is where we probably have a, a shade of disagreement, is that if you're going to let, if we, and we have a system in which we have states make these kind of determinations, I don't know how you get a national standard, right? So, and, and even if you did, then we would have to be able to answer those questions and you would continue to have, a, you know, kind of national debate over what these districts would look like to complicate what you're talking about. For example, the compactness, which I, I, I agree with you uh, that, you know, compactness leads to, to uh, maximizing a particular value. It can simultaneously Simultaneously, though, hinder other values. So in the American political system, one of the potential problems, especially when we've seen this in the South with compact districts, is, is that it disenfranchises African-Americans in many ways because of the historic institutionalized racism of where people live. So, you know, as you attempt to combat one particular problem with districts, it's not as if you get to get rid of these other potential uh, uh, problems with districts. And so different states end up answering those questions differently. Now, I mean, one possibility is, as you're suggesting, is to say, well, look, I think my team, you know, the side I agree with, ought to do in their states what the other team does in their states. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, they ha they've decided not to do that. So it seems weird to me then to say, well, if my team doesn't want to do it that way, I ought to force them to do it that way. I, I, I don't know. Like, uh, talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, well, I'm not saying force them. I'm just saying that's well, a how national I would do mandate. It. Uh, you're forcing uh, them. I mean, if you're having Congress take it over oh, and say, "Well, you got to create districts." Yeah, well, yeah, I would. I would have. Yeah. So my first choice would be for Congress to take it over and require fair elections everywhere. I, I think that you know Congress clearly has constitutional authority to do that. Um, you know, that's for one thing. That's why we already have some legislation like the Voting Rights Act, um, which could go a lot farther. And and um, also, um, Congress has even before the Fourteenth Amendment, which would allow Congress to legislate to protect um, um, racial discrimination voting and things like that, protect against racial discrimination voting. The original Article One already, um, you know, gives states the sort of chance to write the first drafts of electoral legislation, but it but it gives Congress the power to uh, make exceptions and overrule um, uh, um, state rules. So Congress could set uniform national standards for how districting has to be done. And I think that could be done along the lines of what actually has been done in states like Colorado and, and Virginia and Iowa, we have states that have good models. And so Congress could adopt those models and apply them nationally. And I think both as a matter of constitutional authority and as a matter of um, uh, political morality, that would be the best solution. But if, if Congress isn't going to do that, then um, I think the second best solution would be for democratic states to play hardball. Um, you know, if we're in a system that's a free for all and the Republican states are generally playing hardball, then the Democratic states also have to play hardball. So why don't you think, I guess what I'm asking then is, is if that is so straightforward, then why don't you think Democratic states just do that? You know, I think the, the problem is that um, I think a lot of um, Democratic voters um, have an ideology that um, uh, leads them to think fair elections are good things. And so they want that. And they, and they don't have a complete understanding of how far we are from that in some Republican states. So I think they don't necessarily see it as an existential threat to the to 
democracy in America, which I think it is, um, that, that there's gerrymandering in, 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 in one set of states and not another. Um, they don't they don't see the problem that way. Or, you know, some people just, um, you know, have a view that I don't have, you know, that, um, you know, the fact that other people are doing something wrong, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, I guess, mm-hmm, is a view mm-hmm. that a lot of people have. Um, yeah, that's not my view. I actually think two two wrongs can can be closer to a right than, than one wrong, but I think that's that's not a, a a common view, you know. So I think some people just think of it in the more traditional way. I feel like that could be a, a, an al- like a rock album or something. Two wrongs make a right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, you know, so in all in all seriousness, what I would like to kind of transition us from there here is to think about one of what I think is going to be is one of the biggest questions uh, that that's kind of facing us in America. And that is the durability of American democracy, because I think in, in part what we're getting at here and arguing about is how the current way that uh, states are implementing house elections are either advancing or hindering democratic institutions in the United States. But of course, I mean, that's not the only avenue in which to have this. So, you know, as we're thinking kind of retrospectively uh, at 21, 21 to look forward to 2022, I think the durability of American democracy is, is, is a huge question. And we're kind of dancing around that a little bit in a sense here. Why don't we just take it on? You know, and I, I, we're not going to be the first people. I mean, the, the news and outlets are kind of awash in predictions of, you know, what happens next um, with uh, American democracy. Uh, for those who, like, I, I mean, again, I think we agree on this one, that a changed Republican Party, does that mean that we lose democracy? And I, I think for some, it's kind of a bold and shocking claim to the point where we kind of almost laugh it off, right? That can't be the case. But I was noticing this week, that even Reason Magazine, which Reason is a uh, a libertarian magazine uh, that tends to be uh, a pretty you know radical on that kind of front, even they had a really long piece on whether democracy can survive. Now they think in the kind of libertarian fashion that if we can learn to leave each other alone uh, better, that we can we can learn to vote together. But I thought it was again just interesting that even Reason was having this. And so maybe one of the places where we can really sink our teeth into this question, Ken, was I noticed also this week, uh, Senator Rand Paul, he's an individual I once had a tremendous amount of respect for, uh, and and I have slowly but surely lost um, that respect. You know, this week on Twitter, uh, he argued, and and I I, I had to look at this a number of times because I just didn't believe that that could be what he was saying, but it was. Uh, what, What he argued was is that the way that you steal elections, and this is how he's saying it, right? I'm not putting any words into his mouth. The way you steal elections is by helping people to vote legally. Yes, you help people yeah. to vote <laughs> legally and then you count those votes. So uh, here's my question. In, in the face of things like that, like, I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to even fathom that here in 2021, you know, we're arguing that a steal would be counting legal votes, <laughs> right? Okay. And I think this goes along with you say, what does this mean for American democracy that a senator, a senator can be arguing that in, in, in a really visible public and authentic way? What do you, what do you think this means for the durability of American democracy? You were getting into that a little bit. So I just want to hit that as the question. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the one hand, I don't want to um, bet against the, uh, stability of the United States system of government. It, it has, 
lasted 220 years. Uh, it's it's an enormous mature democracy. Actually, 200 and, what 230 more 235 years by yeah, now. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's an, it's, a, it's an enormous mature democracy. It's it's um, th- there's incredible gravitational force holding it together despite these challenges. So I I don't want to be an alarmist and say it's it's going to unravel, um, but I do think it's at its weakest point that it's been. In uh, you know, a, a long time, and maybe since the Civil War, um, because it, it's it's not only the assaults on on voting rights of the type that you've talked about. Uh, you know, that's actually kind of old. I mean, if, if you think about um, American history, um, you know, Rand Paul. You know, it seems kind of shocking in the 21st century that he's saying, "Well, the the problem is." We let we let people vote and we count their votes. You know, we, we wouldn't have any problems if we simply just denied people the vote and didn't count their votes. But but that that kind of talk actually would represent how American elections were run for a lot of American history. We didn't there's large groups of people we didn't let vote. And we still managed to have something that um, some semblance of democracy and maybe even more democracy than other countries had. Um, but I think what's a little bit new now, and I, I actually think this is more where um, I can actually, if it's going to unravel, this is where I see it unraveling, is the the January 6th plot, which it not only involved um, trying to um, suppress votes up front, but it it also um, involved um, arrogating, you know, trying to arrogate to state legislatures the power to overrule uh, popular elections um, when the state legislatures themselves are installed not through popular elections, but through gerrymandering, through the acts of prior state legislatures. So you have a, a state legislature that can entrench its own party in forever, no matter no matter what the voters do. And then you have that state legislature purporting to um, throw out the votes of the um, legislators, of, of the voters even in statewide elections, such as for president or possibly for U.S. senator. If you get to that point where not only are voting rights being suppressed, but where the outcomes of, 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 of elections are being disregarded, um, I think that does pose the, an existential threat to democracy. I think if, if, for instance, a handful of state legislatures had followed John Eastman's bidding and had said, um, we're um, overruling the, the popular vote in our presidential election, Election, we're sending a different slate of electors to, to, to the Electoral College than the one that was chosen by the voters on Election Day, and that that's going to change the outcome of the presidential election and give us a different president than the one that was elected by the people. Um, I, I think if that would happen, that would be such a, um, a, a transparent assault on American democracy, as opposed to assaults on voting rights, which are a little bit more invisible, um, that, that, that I, I think that could actually threaten the dissolution of the country. So I don't know if that's really going to happen, but I think that's the one kind of thing that could threaten the dissolution of the union. Well, I want to take on some more with that, Ken. But before I do, I'm actually going to need uh, to to stop us here for a second. This is going to be the end of our ad-supported preview. And I want to thank you so much for listening to our ad-supported preview. If you'd like to hear uh, more of our conversation, my response to Ken uh, about the American uh, democracy, more about uh, presidential predictions, more about Michael Flynn and other things, inflation, the economy, uh, you can join us by becoming a supporter. Uh, You can become a supporter uh, and listen to our full around two-hour episode every week uh, by heading to patreon.com slash politics, guys. You can also support us through PayPal by going to politicsguys.com slash support. 
Or finally, you can support us through Venmo, and we're at Politics Guys. So again, if you'd like to listen to the rest of the show, please become a supporter. We would love to have you. We'd love to continue the conversation. There's other uh, uh, benefits to being a supporter. And again, you can head to politicsguys.com slash support. You can go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can find us on Venmo at politics guys if for some reason you are not in a position to financially support the podcast right now you can of course reach out to mike at politicsguys.com and he'll be able to set you up with full access to the show just let us know what's going on there thank you so much and again i hope that you will support the show and listen to the rest of the conversation